Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. As you get settled back in, we're going to move to our scripture reading here in just a moment. We are in this fall theme where we're wrestling with the big story of God. How do we enter into God's eternal good story and find our stories located and informed by God's story? And so we are looking at the story in five acts, dividing the story across five acts of a great drama in which the fifth act is still ongoing and we have a part to play, and we're improving that part as best as we can in light of what we know about who the author of this great story is. And so last week we looked at Act 1, the act of creation, and we looked at Act 5, the final act of recreation, and we wanted to bookend the story because it's so important that we know where the story begins and where it ends. And I shared last week um, that I uh, am, am using for this week and last week someone else's sermon, which I really never do. I think I've done it three times in 20 years, but uh, I'm using material from Rob Bell uh, because I find it to be so important so well-crafted and so meaningful for how we enter into this big story. Now, if you weren't here last week, I put some language around that because Rob's name is one that some of you are like, yeah, sign me up. And others of you are like, what did he just say? Uh, and others of you are like, who is that? You know. And so uh, we talked about that last week. You can go listen to the podcast. I won't repeat it. But I just want to encourage you again, hear this for yourself. Discern the good story for yourself. Enter into this, and we'll pick it up on part two uh, here in just a moment. But to start and to frame this, we're going to do a scripture reading. So Tony's going to come on up here, and what's going to happen today is we'll move from part act one in the story, creation, and we'll start transitioning into act two, which is the fall, and Tony will frame that for us. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the servant replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it, give, it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? 
So God expelled them from the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they'd been made. He threw them out of the garden and stationed angel cherubim and a revolving sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree of life. The story of God and God's people. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tony. All right. So ultimately, we're entering into the story of God in order that we might wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus in our day and in our moment? What is the story of God in a world that tells lots of God stories, many of which are uh, redacted or reduced from how beautiful and good and compelling and important this great story is? And so afresh, we want to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christian? And the best way I know to answer it is to enter the story and to find our lives in the story. And here's an important premise for our time this morning. How you begin and end a story. Where and how you begin a story. And where and how you end the story. Shape and determine the story itself. Where and how you begin a story. And where and how you end a story. Shape and determine the story itself. And so it is so important that we sit with where does this story begin and where does this story end. And that's why last week we anchored ourselves in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 or 2-1 and 2-2. It's because we see the beginning of God's good world and we see how God heals and completes and brings to an eternal future. Future God's good world. And so now we enter in to Act Three. I want to recap where we left off last week for those of you who weren't here. And I, if you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you listen to the podcast because it's important in shaping how we move through these next months together. But let's recap what we see in Genesis and Revelation. Um, first of all, in Genesis, Act One of our story is creation, and there is a garden. God plants a garden, and we get this poetry language in Genesis 1 and 2. We see this garden that God has created, and what he created he calls good, and he loves it, and it was not just created, it is creative. It was not just generated, it was generative, and so God creates a world that can create more worlds. God creates a tree that can create more trees. God creates grass that can create more grass. God creates people that can create more people. And as a result, this is a dynamic creation. He didn't taxiderm it and stuff it up on the wall and say, that's it, I'm freezing it in time. He did not say it is perfect. He said it is good. And the goodness of creation is then to be stewarded such that it goes somewhere and it becomes dynamic. And our task is to help shape and steward it. And so God creates gardeners for his garden, and he creates them in his image. And I want us to just sit with how mind-blowing that is. You and I, crafted in the image of God, given the divine spark, and said, I've given you work to do in this world I have made. Go, subdue it, shape it, have dominion over it, rule it, name it, tend it, care for it, protect it, that this world I have made can keep on being shaped 
and can keep on flourishing. And so it is a participatory world. We are given the role of kings and priests, kings who lead this world, priests who lead this world in worship to God, and everything is good, and everything is blessed, and everything is holy, and God is here. In Genesis 1 and 2, there is no somewhere else. God is walking with them. That's where the story begins. And then Genesis, uh, Revelation 21 and 22 is where the story ends. And now we don't have a garden, we have a city. A city is a collection of gardens. And well stewarded, we see the river still flows, the trees still bloom, the fruit is still coming on to, uh, in each season, it's, it's bearing fruit. There are leaves, the leaves heal the nations. There is no more sin. There is no more death. Nothing is accursed any longer. And we are still in the image of God, reflecting God. It says that the, the image of God is on their foreheads, and they have work to do as a kingdom of priests. They are reflecting God's image to the world, and they are reflecting creation's praises back to God. And everything is blessed, and everything is holy, and everything is good, and God is here, and there is no somewhere else. And so, where the story begins and where the story ends is where we start and end our story. And as we said last week, if you take sin out of the story, you get this short little pamphlet. The Bible would be a very short pamphlet. Now, we know that's not the whole story. We'll enter into the rest of it now, but it's important that we start there. If we're going to put a word around what we see in Genesis and Revelation, the word is shalom. Shalom is this Hebrew word. It means wholeness rightness, holiness, goodness. Everything is as it is intended to be. That is, of course, what we pray when we pray the prayer Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Shalom. And what shalom rests on is this notion of harmony within hierarchy, among other things. That there is a hierarchy to God's creation, and so long as we keep the hierarchy intact, we have shalom. The problem is we don't always keep the hierarchy intact. Sometimes we wrongly order this creation. God created us to be in right relationship with one another and right relationship with him to rightly order the creation. And here's the structure. Here's the hierarchy. There is creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then made in the image of God, his people. That's you and I with work to do. Given this sense of, of uh, as, as Peter says in the New Testament, partaking as participants in the divine nature, I mean, it's mind-blowing, the dignity, the vocation that is bestowed on us, creator, humans, and then the creation. And we are placed in the middle with work to do, with a role to play, to rightly order this thing. And so we are to co-create with God but we are not God. God is God. And as a result, because we are not God, we have limitations. And limitations never feel good. And the image we're given is of this man and woman. They're in the garden. They're known by God. They're known of each other. And then there's this one tree. They've got access to all the other trees. But there's the one tree. And isn't this just the story of all of us? How much we are given how much we have, and we get our eyes set and fixed and focused on that one thing that is not ours, 
And God basically says, look, this one tree, it's not that it's a bad tree, it's that it's above your pay grade. You are not God, and you cannot handle this information. It's too much for you. And so a boundary is set, and they take the fruit. They violate the boundary, but even more than violating a boundary, what they violate is the relationship. They violate the hierarchy within harmony. They disrupt, they, they rupture shalom. It's a rebellion of relationship. It's a, a rebellion of the place and the purpose. And this is what we call sin. This is what we call sin. Sin is this word that has been loaded and weaponized in our time. And I hope that over the next few weeks as we sit with sin we might be able to find helpful ways of talking about it that we begin to see where we are complicit in the way of sin and how we are also called into a story where sin does not get the last word. And so they violate the relationship, they breach shalom, and sin is ultimately an archery word. Like the imagery initially comes from archery. It's as if God took the arrow and he set it on course in Genesis 1, and it's going toward its end, a garden into a city. It's toward its telos, but then we come and bend the arrow off course, and that is what we call sin. It is to take what God has, has done and is doing and to bend it our own way instead. And so ultimately, sin then becomes the force behind the fractures of this world. It is the reason that we do not have the beloved and whole world that God intended. And therefore, to be a sinner is not to say that you do not have inherent worth or inherent dignity. It is rather a diagnosis of a current condition. It's not a statement of value, it's a statement of diagnosis. It is a way of saying, yes, you can be a beloved, good, otherwise healthy human, but this one thing is sick. And because it is sick, that sickness needs to be named and reckoned with lest it become increasingly unhealthy and increasingly uh, begin to define who you are. And so that's what it means when we say that we're a sinner. It's simply our way of saying, I've played a part in the fracturing of this world. I've played a part in disrupting shalom. I have taken the arrow and bent it the way I would prefer that it go. I too have been hoodwinked by lesser stories. I've given myself to lesser loves. I have had disordered affections and because of my disordered affections, I have disordered the world. I've messed up the harmony within the hierarchy. And so, within this harmony within hierarchy, as long as we keep those things in their rightful place, there is that shalom. But what tends to happen is we do one of two things. First of all, we look to the creation to meet the transcendent needs of our soul that can only be met in the creator, right? And so if you think about this, this is at the root of violence. This is at the root of idolatry. This is at the root of uh, disordered relationships with power, with money, with sexuality, with identity. We are taking transcendent things about what it means to be made in the image of God, and we look to creation to meet those rather than to the creator to meet those. If you think about a substance abuse, Ultimately, what you have is this otherwise good substance that is now being used for something other than that which it was created, and I become dependent on it, and I try to use it to meet something it was never meant to do, and as a result, I end up with a lack of shalom, right? And so that's the story that's playing out 
in our lives. Now, to hold against that backdrop, I think sin makes plenty of sense. In fact, I don't think you have to try to do much work to convince people of this reality. I don't think we need it beat over our heads. I think we feel it in our bones, right? Like, we all know that this is the world we live in. And so we see that sin enters the story, and then we start seeing some things emerge that we had not seen up to this point. If we look at verse 7 through 10, all of a sudden, we see violence show up in our story, shame, fear, death, and selfishness. And so the cool of the evening breeze is blowing. The man and the wife hear God walking about in the garden, and they hide from God. And the Lord God calls them, where are you? Now, here's a question. Does the creator of the universe have trouble finding two naked people running around in a garden? (laughs) He does not. He knows right where they are. The where are you question is not like, where did you go? are you? Where are you? Where are you now? What have you done, he says. The first question in scripture comes from the serpent saying, did God really say not to eat that? But the first question from God, where are you? We're going to see in the long run that Jesus shows up on the scene and he asks all kinds of questions. I mean, if there's one thing Jesus communicates, it's just questions. And yet the first question ever put on the lips of God to his creation, where are you? We're going to sit with that question next week in our house churches. And look at Adam's response. I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. We did not see this in Genesis 1 and 2, but suddenly on the other side of sin, we have hiding, which has to do with shame and protection, covering myself up. We have fear. Because of fear, I am afraid that I am not safe and I am at stake, and I feel naked. Something about my value and worth and dignity suddenly feels exposed in ways it didn't before. When we feel afraid and we feel like we're being seen, we want to gouge the eyes out of the person who might see us, and therefore it doesn't surprise us that Genesis 3, we have shame and fear. Genesis 4, we have murder, right? There's not a big leap there, because if I start being afraid of you, and you become a threat to me. And so you can see, this is at the heart of our human condition. This is at the heart of the place we find ourselves. If you trace the things that have most fractured our world from mental health, to emotional health, to public health, to social health, to relational health, they're all here, right? If you, uh, here's an example for us uh, that Bell gives. There are two billion 381,545,000 people living in moderate to severe food insecurity today. The earth makes enough food for everyone. The earth creation deshaws enough food for everyone. We have not rightly stewarded and ordered that creation. This is sin. Right? That's what it means to be complicit in the way of sin. And as a result, 30% of all human beings on the planet are food insecure right now. 800 million people are starving. And so we confess we too are culpable, we too are complicit. 
And so the power of sin and death emerge in the story, and they become the great enemies of God's story. And I want you to remember that. The power of sin and the power of death are the two great enemies in God's story, and we're going to see when we get to Easter what Jesus has to say about the power of sin and the power of death. Now, I feel overwhelmed at this point. Like, it feels like sin has dealt this death blow to God's creation. I don't know what to do about 800 million people starving, when I leave this place, I'm probably going to go get lunch somewhere, right? Like, I don't say that, like, I'm, I'm saying I don't, I feel paralyzed. I don't know what to do. Sin has had catastrophic, devastating effects. The disruption of shalom is not something we make light of. All of us, and some of us more tangibly and palpably right now in this moment, are walking in the consequences of sin in ways that result in great suffering in our lives. All of us bring the effect of sin into this place, and we find its roots in Genesis 3. We're going to talk about that over the month or so ahead, but for now, I want to give us some good news, and and I'll kind of move to part two of this, and I'll do it quickly. The good news is this. First of all, uh, from this moment on in the story, Genesis 3, God enacts a rescue plan to set things right again. And it's going to take the rest of Scripture to get it. But the other good news, the even better news, Genesis 3 is not how the story begins, and Genesis 3 is not how the story ends. That is good news. Sin does not get the first nor the final word in God's story. The reason I think this is fascinating is that when we tell the Christian story to the world, we tend to start the story with the third chapter. Have you noticed this? Why do we do this? You would not take a Hemingway novel or a Dostoevsky novel and be like, let's pick up the story 40 pages in and let me try to tell you. You'd be like, you missed core parts of the story. But when we tell the Christian story, we tend to start it at Genesis 3. There is this problem called sin, and you are a sinner, and you need something to save you from your sin, and God has done that, so receive that good news. That's all true, and that's all necessary. And my goodness, I need the salvation of Jesus every single day. But that is not the whole story. That is part, a big part, an important part, a necessary part, but it's not the whole story. If you tell the story starting in Genesis 3, what you get is a story about the sin problem, and therefore you have to solve the sin problem, and therefore we make God existing only to solve the sin problem, and we end up with a solution that is spiritual forgiveness only, spiritual forgiveness only. But the story is bigger than that. We need a big enough story. We need not a sin-centric story, but a God-centric story. This story is broader than that. If instead we start the story with Genesis 1 and 2, we don't get a removal of sin story, we get a restoration of shalom story. And that includes the forgiveness of sin. It includes Jesus handling sin, but it also includes Hungry people getting food again, and it includes this garden turning into a city again, and it includes work for us to do, and all that God put in place, the restoration of shalom, the whole cosmos gets caught up in that story, and we are invited again to partner with God to reclaim this is my Father's world, right? That is a big enough story. 
And then, if we tell the Genesis 3 story, if we start in Genesis 3, the story becomes driven by who you're not. You're a sinner. Your heart is evil. It's wicked. Therefore, be ashamed. Therefore, respond to that shame in fear that God might save you. And we start the story with a negative definition of who we are. Genesis 1, the story becomes driven by who you are. Before time began, you were blessed and beloved of God, crafted by a God who knew every page of your story, every tear you will cry, and he loves what he made, and one of the things he made was you. Sign me up for a story that starts with, you are God's beloved child, and yes, there is sin, and yes, it has devastating effect, and yes, sometimes it feels like everything has gone wrong, and there is real responsibility and, and culpability in our participation with sin, but let's not lose that even a cut deeper than that is that you are beloved of God, and because that is true, you have dignity and vocation and responsibility to steward God's good story in a way that leads it back towards shalom. We are responsible to get in on this, to rightly order this life, which begins with rightly ordering our relationship with the Creator and saying, I repent from my wrong ordering, my looking to creation to solve things it cannot solve, or my attempt to be God, and I take my place humbly at the center of this, stewarding creation and worshiping God. That's what it looks like to tell a Genesis 1 story. And so, we confess that we have sinned against God and neighbor. We see our part in the culpability of this, and then we repent, this word that means to turn around, right? I've been bending the arrow off course, but now I'm going to repent because I see that I'm offered the invitation to come home again to my father's house of love and to get to work setting the world right. And God is on the edge of his seat, staring out over the horizon, looking for the first glimpse of me coming home that he might embrace me and say, you are still my good beloved child. That is what's most true about you. Now let's deal with that sin that is a reality also. Right? That's what it means to enter a Genesis 1 story. Let's do two more. In Genesis 3 story, things are fundamentally suspicious and tainted, though they can be purified. In a Genesis 1 story, creation is fundamentally good or blessed, but it has the possibility of being corrupted right? So you can see there's truth in both sides of this story. We don't want to act as if sin is not a reality, but what happens when we start with this idea that creation is fundamentally suspicious or tainted is now I have to bless things God already blessed. I have to find ways to put a Christian label on things or else there, be careful about that, right? This leads us to weird subcultures like having to Christianize music or art or breath mints, and yes, it is a thing. They're called testaments. Look it up. It's like, because your breath mint wasn't blessed unless you Christianized it, right? God already blessed it. God made it all. It was his before it was corrupted. 
And so fundamentally, what is most true is that it is good and blessed, and yes, we then have responsibility to ensure that what was good and blessed does not become corrupted, and so we want to steward it well. This has huge implications for our daily life because sometimes I labor under the idea that on top of my day job, and on top of my family, and on top of getting the kids to soccer practice, and on top of all the other things going on in my life, now I gotta find something to do for God on top of that, right? And I end up laboring with this idea that I've got to find ways to do blessed things because my life is not inherently blessed, right? It's not inherently good. Rooted in a Genesis 3 story, these things happen because we have to Christianize it. I want you to think about the things you already do in your life and how they are Genesis 1 and 2 activities if you will see them as ways to co-create with God. Those of you who are parents, parenting is literally the stewarding of creation for the sake of a better future where you can point back towards shalom. That is a good, holy, blessed vocation. Business, you provide goods at fair prices to meet needs. This is co-creation work. It is holy in its own right if you do it in ways that point to the shalom God has intended. You take what the earth produces. You steward it well. How can you do your job with a view and a vantage point of how do I further shalom in this thing that I do Monday through Friday? Education, the whole world is bursting with things to discover and explore and learn and teach. Justice, a right ordering of creation is going to involve things like affordable housing and mental health and creation care or art, beauty, aesthetics, finding ways to say God created me in his image and since he's a creator, I'm a creator too and I get to take these things that exist and fashion them for the sake of something utterly new existing in this world for no other purpose, not to do something, but because it's already blessed and I get to just create something that's blessed in its own right. Last thing, in a Genesis 3 story, healing can only come by escaping got to get out of this sin-doomed place, right? I got to get out of here. The real action is out there in the indeterminate future, and I just have to hang in there. My hope for now is to hang in there. I once talked to a pastor, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm saved now. I get it. What do I do for the rest of my life? And he said, go get other people saved, right? And that was, that was it. <laughs> and there's something there that's true, right? But it was like, it was like is, is, there, is there more? than just doing things that set up some indeterminate future. In a Genesis 1 and 2 story, healing comes through reclaiming. We get out, not out of this. We don't have to get out of this. We get to get in on this. We get to get in on this world and God's work to make things whole again, which is what we will do for eternity. So, as we end, I want to be clear. We're going to spend the next four weeks talking about sin and the devastating consequences of sin and the ways it shows up insidiously in our lives. I don't want to stick a happy sticker on it and be like, ah, no big deal. No, no, big, big, big deal, which is why it takes the whole Bible to sort of sort through all of that. I'm, it very much has impacted the way we all show up in the world, but it is not what is most true about you. It is not the first word spoken over your life, and it will not be the last word spoken over God's world. And so we remember that 
we enter into it, and we remember that at the end of the day, God is telling a story, and he is intent on telling a story in which all things will be restored, all things will be renewed, all things will be reconciled, and all things will be recreated again. This is his Father's world, and God is not giving up on it. Let's pray. Jesus, as we enter into this story, help us to be enraptured with the goodness of this story and the goodness of this world, and therefore let us be people moved to repentance in the ways we have broken up this good story, in the choices we make, in the affections we wrongly order, in the places in our heart where we want to be God or we want to worship lesser things. Help us to just be moved in those things. Move to confession, move to repentance so that we might be healed. In Jesus' name.